0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Don Abernathy.
1: The sea was almost calm as I looked for the flag on the stern of the big cruiser behind us off our port side, but there was none. I asked a nearby sailor why not, and he said, Look amidships. And just then a breeze unfolded the largest American flag I had ever seen. We went over the side and down the nets in a smooth and orderly manner because we were so well trained and the landing crafts were as still as a dock. Ransom, always the comedian said, When things get real bad, Uncle Sam always sends in the Marines, My God, that's us! How did I get here anyway? Mama! Mama! I want to come home! We had been repeatedly told that this was the first real ship to shore landing in history and nobody could do anything more than guess if such an idea would be successful. And of course, several of the wits reminded us of this repeatedly. We formed a circle of landing crafts, and all the comedians began to wisecrack about enjoying the last few minutes of their life. Then the circle opened and we formed a line. The sailors brought the crafts to full power as we headed towards the beach. The sun was shining brightly, and a 3 by 5 foot American flag was on the stern of every craft as we raced towards the beach under full power. I looked over the side at a line of flags streaming out from the stern of gray landing craft that seemed to reach to eternity. It gave me the old lump in the throat. Ransom was beside me doing the same and said, salt spray will make your eyes water, won't it? I had always been a Civil War buff, and actually, my thoughts as I looked around me were, I wonder if the average Civil War outfit was as young as this crew. Their clothes were new, their packs were new, their weapons were spotless, and their cartridge belts. Were strangely bulging with bright new brass 30-06 rounds because we had never had full cartridge belts before. Everyone carefully loaded his weapon, slipping around into the chamber and putting it on safety. A cruiser float plane flew over us very low and as slowly as possible, as the pilot and rear gunner waved to us as though we were going to a picnic. We were all determined to get at least one of the enemy before they wiped us out. We braced ourselves as the craft slid up onto the beach. We charged out ready to do or die. And there was the first wave sitting, laughing at us, opening coconuts. Welcome, everybody, to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. I'm your host, Don Abernathy. And I want to thank each and every one of you for uh, spreading the word about our little podcast. The numbers are growing. I'm getting a lot more comments on Facebook from people I don't know, which is always a great thing, because if I don't know them and they say they like our show, that means they found us through other people. They found us through you. So if you've been spreading the word about our little podcast, thank you so much. And I hope you enjoyed that little opening clip there. I did not write that. No, I'm not that good of a writer. I lifted that, if you will, from the book by Sid Phillips called You'll Be Sorry, and I opened the show with that for a very important reason, but we will get to that reason here momentarily. All will reveal itself, ladies and gentlemen. First and foremost, shout out to the SD World War II Living History Group on Facebook. That's at SDWW2LHG. They posted a very nice comment on my Facebook page today, and I want to say thank you so much. Here's our comment. I've been listening to your podcast at work, very enjoyable, and you touch on a lot of good stuff. I'll mention you in our World War II Club's newsletter, to which I replied, fantastic, thanks for all the kind words, I would love to get a copy of that, expect an email. And they wrote back and said, what's your address, because it is a hard copy, which, honestly, I think it's kind of cooler. Um, I think it's, you know, the idea of having a hard print copy with a little shout out to us. Is a little more official than an email thread that someone won't read because it'll go to their spam box. So thank you so much to the fine people over at the SDWW2 Living History Group in South Dakota. And thank you for your support, and thank you for spreading the word. And it means so much. A lot of you guys are are telling people about my podcast. Um, this next gentleman who's going to come up here shortly to talk about Guadalcanal, he actually became aware of the podcast through uh, one of his friends and fellow living historians. And so it's working. Um, you guys are spreading the word, and I appreciate it so much. I want to hear from you guys, too. I'm always looking for contributors. You want to come on the show, share your knowledge, please hit me up. Or if you have any comments, questions, show suggestions, I'm always looking for fresh ideas. Email us at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. That's info at WTSPWWII.com. And I'll read your emails on the show. Um, I'll take your comments, questions. Like I said, if you want to come on the show and share some wisdom, please do. I will book you. And we'll set up a phone interview. And uh, we'll share your knowledge with uh, our audience. That's what we're trying to do. I don't know everything. I hardly know anything. And I need your help. So um, if you want to come on, share your knowledge. Or if you have some veteran friends or you know where I can talk to some World War II vets and you can set up a phone interview or just give me the information and I'll call and set up. That would be awesome as well. And now let's get the housekeeping out of the way. I know I said that before, but here it goes. All the plugs, all the uh, support, all the sponsors. First and foremost, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast has been brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers has been servicing all Southwest Florida's computer needs since 2004. They specialize in veterinary clinics, medical clinics, businesses large and small. doesn't matter if you have three computers and a printer or a server, 12 computers, tablets, laptops, the whole nine, they can help you out with all of it. They can help you out to form authentication for the internet, all your internet-based applications, remote desktop, etc. Online backups, online antiviruses. Like I said before, your wife spilt wine on her keyboard, now it's all messed up. They can help replace that on the laptop. Um, you need data recovered from broken laptops or tablets, they can help you out that area. Um, if you have the new fancy Nest doorbells or ring doorbell systems and you don't know how to install it or you don't even want to bother to install it, they can help you out with that. The Google Home systems, pretty much anything, anything that's tech related, they can help you out. Now, I know what you're saying, Don. I don't live in Southwest Florida. How can I use at computers? Well, some of you have. Some of you who do not live in town have called them up and they told at computers they heard about them on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast and they want to try the remote login. And ACT will simply send you to their website, act-capecoral.com. Click on the remote login link, and they'll log in your computer with your permission. Fix your issues. As long as your internet works, they can take care of you even if you don't live in Southwest Florida. And you can support the show that way. Their phone number is 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. Now, while you're on the internet and you're getting ready to send that email to info at wtspworldwar2.com, go ahead and open up that browser and go to wtspworldwar2.com and do two things one click on the Amazon link save that to your favorites or put a copy on your desktop simply click on that link or use that favorites link whenever you shop on Amazon and Amazon will kick some coins our way to help bring you more content and get us better hardware also on the right hand side please click on the patron link please become a patron on our patreon page we have three tiers you know the deal One's a dollar a month, one's $3.50 a month, and the other one's $7.50 a month. If you sign up for the Long Arms Deep Pocket Plan, I will send you a t-shirt. Any t-shirt you want, including the new WTSP Lucky Strike shirt that was just released yesterday. You can see it on our Facebook page. Thank you so much for all the love, all the support, and sharing this with your friends. If you're an iTunes user, please uh, subscribe. Rate and review us. Give us five stars. That'll help out. You can rate and review us on our Facebook page. And for those of you who don't know, we're also on Google, Spotify, Stitcher. Anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find us there. And as we said last week, if you want to learn more about the people you hear on the show, simply go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You will see a link to the show page. And on that webpage, it'll have photos, links to all the pertinent websites. You can get all the information about the person we're talking to there. Thank you so much, and on with the show. And joining us right now, I'm happy to uh, announce, uh, this gentleman came to me, and this is always an option for those of you who are listening to the podcast and you think you may have something to contribute. I am constantly looking for people to contribute to our show because, as I've said in the past, I know some stuff, but I don't know everything. And so if you're listening to my show and you think you could uh, provide some content or you know some stuff about things I may not know, please Email us at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com, or as this gentleman did, reach out to us via the Facebook Messenger. Joining us right now via the phones, Brian Dimitrovich. Brian, how are you doing this afternoon?
0: Fantastic.
1: First off, thank you so much for reaching out to me. Um, The project you have going on, or more of a passion vacation, if you will, you've made multiple times, is very cool, but I don't want to get into that quite yet. Um, as you know, one of the things we like to do on the show is the first time we have a first time guest. We like to get to know a little bit about you and you just told me what you did for a living, which is very cool. You were definitely the first one on the podcast of this particular, uh, career path. What do you do and how did you get into living history and or, um, World War II history in general?
0: So right now I'm in the, I'm in the nuclear industry. Um, and, uh, obviously, um, you know, it's, uh, doesn't really relate to to, uh, to living history, but uh, my my passion has always been World War II history. My uncle Stephen Dimitrovich is one of the last two living survivors of the Malmedy massacre, and um, most of the men on, on that side of, of my family served in World War II in some capacity. So so I had the privilege. To grow up listening to these stories from these guys and and that really is what drove my passion to to study World War II and um, as I as I got older I realized that hey there's this uh, kind of subsect of of the uh, history genre that that, you know you can actually go and and do you know living histories and interpretations and, and demonstrations so I've I've been doing I've I've been in World War Two Living History, that, that realm of things now uh for about thirteen years and uh has uh, led us to do a, a lot of interesting things. Um actually Parachute Rifle Company, which is a book you can get on Amazon, we were kind of asked to do the uh the the modeling and, and, and everything for photos in there and and uh so you know, we've got the you know Travel to a lot of different places and meet a lot of interesting people. So this hobby, you know, provides, uh, you know, people come from all walks of life and, and you get to meet some interesting people and get to do some amazing things. And, you know, in the end, you're keeping the, the memory of these men alive. And, uh, I think in the end, that's, that's kind of, you know, what it's all about.
1: You know, it's interesting because both you and Elizabeth from last week's episode, you both kind of had the same answer to the first question is, well, what I do has nothing to do with living history, but. And part <laughs> of the reason why I start out that way is because I like to demonstrate to those who listen to the show who aren't living historians, I like to demonstrate the fact that we all do different things for a living, um, that we're not all from the same cloth, quote unquote, that we're all from different walks of life. Some of us are teachers. Some of us are computer guys. Some of us are uh, police officers, EMTs, and uh, working in the nuclear field, that this history doesn't just bite a certain demographic of people. It's people of all swaths of life, um, backgrounds, um, demographics, everything. And that's why I always start off with that question, because to me, it's interesting to find out what we all do. Because not to beat a dead horse, but As we all know, one of the barriers to entry into this hobby is the cost. And so a direct correlation of us getting into it is obviously what funds that and what do we do for a living that allows us to have the income required to participate in this lifestyle. And the second thing, which you pointed out, is the roads, the paths, that none of us think about when we get into this. We get into this, as you said, to preserve history or because we have family members who served and as the old saying, which is kind of dying out now, especially with the way everybody gets upset about everything nowadays, is in order to understand one's life and one's history, you got to walk a mile in that man's shoes. Well, thank God most of us, those of us who never served in active combat, thank God we will never experience the true horrors of war and the misery and the terror and the mental impact and the physical impact. But the one thing we can do is to literally walk or march a mile in their boots and their clothing. We can do the force march. We can live out in the field for a week, two weeks at a time. We can live not to the full extent, but we can kind of dip our toes into the lifestyle hardships as far as the itchiness, the hotness, the weight, the uncomfortableness, the sleeping on the ground and all that sort of thing. And that's kind of why we immerse ourselves into this existence. But the things that come along with it, the being contacted saying, "Hey, you already have this equipment. We're making this book. Can you come out and do a photo shoot so we can use your likeness in the book?" Or, "Hey, we're shooting a TV series over here. You already have the uniform. Would you like to be an extra in a TV show?" So all the cool ancillary things that come along with this hobby, none of us expect to do, but because we have these uniforms and this gear, we are basically saving a production company a bunch of money by not having to go out and research it and buy it themselves. And so oftentimes, oh, these very very cool Experiences come along with the hobby that none of us ever thought about when we got into it
0: exactly you're exactly right
1: and has there been other things other than the um the i don't want to say model shoot but the contributing to the books the photos that you've done that have come along with this hobby
0: oh yeah we've um you know we've had uh book we've all you know we've been able to participate in uh, a few history channel uh, TV shows shoots uh, different things like that he uh, actually one of the more weirder interesting things that we were asked to do was uh, a, a gentleman I uh, was a Vietnam veteran and uh, was, was getting married and uh, had hired us to come down and run an authentic World War two checkpoint Ah, uh, for his wedding, <laughs> and so as the guests came in, uh, we were there in full gear and 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 weapons, and and we had a checklist, and the people would come through, and you know we uh, we we had to run this checkpoint for the wedding, and you know the the, the gentleman you know, put us up in a hotel, he paid for our travel and and everything, and and the guests just thought it was the neatest thing, and. And for us, uh, we got to meet some just tremendous heroes of not only World War II, but Vietnam veterans, and got to spend some time with them. And, uh, you know, so, so that was one of the, the, I think, more bizarre requests that we've gotten over the, over the years. Um, but, but also to, you know, museums, um, being able to do demonstrations, we've, we've gotten to do, uh, I remember one in particular um, at the Army uh, Heritage Center at uh, the Army War College in Carlisle, we we were asked to do uh, a weapons demonstration um, for for their top command structure there. So it was it was pretty neat being able to you know shoot the, shoot World War II weaponry and mortars and 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 different things for you know the the colonels and top brass of the Army War College. So uh, you know it's it's been interesting things like that that we've gotten to do. And Like you said, it's just it's bizarre because you don't get into the hobby for those reasons, but they just somehow fall into your lap sometimes and you're not, you're not going to pass those up because it's, uh, you know, when you're going to get a chance to do those again. Yeah. One of the cool things
1: I had the opportunity to do and it, it literally just kind of, oh, while you here, here, um, is I volunteered to go out on the SS American victory. It's a Liberty ship that's moored in the, uh, Tampa Bay and it's actually a museum and it it does have the ability to go out under its own power um to Tampa Bay, and they, they do tours, and they they ask a small group of reenactors, because with the size of the internal, you know, galleyways and the hallways of the ships, you don't want, like, 200 reenactors walking around, because then the people who pay to be on there won't have any room. Right. And so they, act, they ask, you know, maybe 10, 15 of us to go out there. And it's cool, and, you know, after a second, third time, it's like, okay, we've done this before, but, like, the fourth time I was there... They're like, hey, we have a special request. We have the widows of two of the gentlemen who actually served on this vessel during wartime. And they have their ashes, and we are going to do a burial at sea ceremony. And we would like you guys to participate in that, you know, stand at attention, do the call to arms and all that. And so that was probably the most honoring and humbling thing I've, I've had to do in this experience. On um, the second one, the opportunity arose, but I just converted you know started developing a army impression for the first ID because I started out doing USMC stuff and I didn't quite have my uniform fully together and the guy who ran my first ID group reached out to me and said hey I just got a phone call a gentleman's father passed away he was in the first ID he's wanting some guys to come down and wear the classy uniforms and be at his funeral but at the time I didn't have a classy uniform I mean I didn't even I just had HBTs I didn't want to show up you know wearing HBTs and leggings and in that and it was just like it was a day notice So i was very saddened that i wasn't able to fulfill that but with that being said i didn't want to go down there and half-ass it you know because that's something very 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 important and i didn't want to uh tarnish the memory or come off looking you know like a half put together impression just to get it done and so I unfortunately and regretfully i had to turn that one down but the uh the burial at sea thing was very honoring, and um, I was so happy to be a part of that. It was just very humbling. So we're going to get down to brass tacks. We all have our bucket list of things we want to do, things we want, places we want to go. And for a lot of you, that was uh, heading over to Normandy, France. I know a lot of the listeners and some of my friends got the chance to go over to France for the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. But as many of you know, I am a PTO guy. I can't explain why, but that's where my expertise seems to lie. That's where I do most of my reading. And that's part of the reason why Brian reached out to me, because this guy, he uh, does something very cool. And we did have Clay Bonnyman Evans on a few episodes back, and he's been down to Tarawa a few times. And you've done something very similar, but a different atoll. Tell our audience where you have gone and what you kind of have organized amongst you and some of your fellow living historians. Over the last couple of years,
0: well, we've uh, over the past few years, you know, like you said, a lot of people travel to E T to the E T O, and and uh, for for most people in World War II, it's typically where do you want to go, and it's Normandy. Normandy's usually in that top three uh, that people want to do. And uh, when I first started out, that was my my area where, you know, and, and I traveled there, you know, I've been to Normandy many times, uh, with, uh, you know, my wife reluctantly coming along. Uh, <laughs> and you know, it, she is, uh, it, in the end, she's the, she's the one that, you know, really makes this happen and has been along with me and has been in the rainy forests of, of Belgium standing there as, as I'm, you know, oohing and aahing over trench lines or, dragon's teeth or different things but um
1: she has her phone out um, looking for the nearest wine place to do some tasting later on yeah and and that's usually where where the
0: wives and the girlfriends they 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 usually don't mind the the european theater Mm -hmm. as much because then after you come out of the woods and and uh and out of the bocage of the you know the hedgerows you can go to a nice French cafe and have a baguette and and have a sandwich and enjoy kind of that French Norman countryside The and, conventional tourist um, stuff. But uh, the what what really the the battle that in in you know in my opinion is is probably one of the most important battles that that America fought in. Uh, in my opinion, the most important battle that we fought in in the Pacific War and probably one of the most important battles of World War II was the Battle of Guadalcanal. And um, I, I turned my attention really to how can I get to this island and how can I go walk this battlefield um, because obviously it's not um, as, as easy to get to as, as, as Normandy, but definitely doable. And, and uh, in 2015, it was the first time that I went there and, and spent about three weeks uh, on the island. And um, and then, as my friends and fellow living historians said, "Hey, we want to do this too." And I I knew enough to be dangerous uh, in terms of that, and organized the trip just recently here in uh, April, May timeframe, and uh, took a group of uh, guys there uh, to to do it again. And, uh, so we, uh, traveled uh, to, to the Solomon Islands, which is the Solomon Islands is the country, uh, and, and then Guadalcanal is a province of that country, which houses the capital of Honiara, uh, which Honiara is a direct result after world war II because they essentially made that the capital because of all the infrastructure that the Americans had left there, uh, after the battle. Sure. So that is, uh. That, that has been kind of my my, uh, my passion uh, of the Pacific War, is, is, is traveling to the island of not only the island of Guadalcanal, but also Tulagi and uh, the, the small islands of Gavutu and Tanambogo, uh which uh, the paramarines uh, faced uh, fierce uh, attacks by, by the Japanese uh, early in the campaign.
1: Well, one of the things you kind of pointed out um... You can probably call just about any travel agency and there's some sort of mem- remembering World War II or, you know, following the Band of Brothers. There's some sort of tourist package that's easily obtainable. It's already been organized. There's tourists put together. And it's, you know, it's doable if you got, you know, long as the finances are there. It's relatively easy and and to do if you got the vacation time and all that. But to fly down to the South Pacific, that's something you kind of... Kind of got to organize a little bit more, at least earlier back when you first started back in 2015. I'm sure maybe now with the popularization of HBO's Pacific, it may be a little easier, but not too much. But that's something you kind of got to do old school and kind of plan out for yourself, right?
0: Well, um, in 2015, I'd actually went with a company uh, called Valor Valor Tours. They're out of California. Okay. Um, there, there's only a few companies that do the Pacific tours but they have been slowly i see a lot more companies popping out um but the the this time around obviously you learn certain things when you do stuff with organized trips um you know i have friends that are in 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 europe that that have tour guides so or or they are tour guides and so it's easy for somebody to go hey i'm going to go on you know this website. I'm going to book this flight. I'm going to book this hotel, and then I'm going to book a local tour guide. Um, over, over in the Pacific, like you said, it's 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 a lot more difficult um, to to get there. Right now, I can go to Pittsburgh International and and find a, a direct flight, or if not a a one-stop flight to Paris, and be there within the bay. Some of these islands that you go to in the Pacific. They may only see one, two, three flights a week, uh, to fly into that island. And, um, it, it is a lot more difficult. And, and then once you get to these islands, it's the, the infrastructure is not really there, um, as it is in, you know, Western, uh, uh like the United States or even Europe. Um, it's, uh, you know, some of these nations are, are, are impoverished, uh, but the, the, the people there, the one thing that I can say about the people of the Solomon Islands and the people of Guadalcanal is, is that their their love of of America, their appreciation of America, and and what they did to sacrifice, um, for for them, um, is 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 not any different than than the people of Normandy or the people of Belgium. Um, when, when when you touch down and there's people there and you know, high-fiving you and seeing that you're American—you um, know—it it really, you know, it, to them, it's still an important part of their history. Uh, and and uh, you know, it's—it's always—it's always plagued me. I—I I, I never understood it. And you know, you—you you see it a little bit, like you said, with the with the Pacific and Band of Brothers. Uh, Band of Brothers is this huge juggernaut still continues to this day. Um, when the Pacific came out, people in the living history community, you know, everybody sat there and went, oh, no, nah, everybody's going to do marine now. And that was in 2010. And, and and really, the PTO never really took off quite as much as the airborne section of, of the hobby did. And And, you know, it's still kind of this weird... You know, people ask, "Well, would you like better Band of Brothers in the Pacific?" And and uh, Two mostly lines. nine nine people out of ten are always going to say Band of Brothers. And um, you know, I I think the the Band of Brothers, or excuse me, the 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 battle in in Europe, the the, the fight for Europe has always had this romanticized view around it, mm-hmm. where uh, you know you have these images of people rolling into these you know, villages and the, 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 the people are coming out, the women are kissing the, sh- the, the soldiers and champagne and bread and the liberation and, and, uh, but in the Pacific, it's, it's different because you're, and a lot of people always say, well, Hey, you know, the, the, you know, there was an airfield, the Japanese, the, the, the typical, transition phase of this island hopping island hopping campaign was okay the Japanese built an airfield there we need to take this airfield send the marine corps send the army and and we need to retake this airfield back from the Japanese but what a lot of people don't understand is is in the Solomon Islands and I've met some of these people that were children there during the battle and they felt as if the Americans were liberating them as well um and 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 being being able to stand uh, in these locations and, and, and talk to the people there, it's, uh, it's just, to me, it's a complete complete different feeling, a, a different set of goosebumps, if you will, uh, than traveling to, to Europe or the battlefields of Europe.
1: Well, I mean, we've all read, um, you'll be sorry, Sid Phillips, we've all read, um, you know, with the old breed and strong men are in America versus Japan, and we've read, and the nice thing about those books is they're all very very well written and they include a lot of the personal struggles that each Marine went through. You know, As we said before, if the Japanese weren't trying to kill you, Mother Nature was. But when you're reading that from the comfort of your air-conditioned living room or your garden tub while you're taking back, relaxing after a hot day of work, you can only experience so much. Your first time setting down... On Guadalcanal, and you get out of the plane I'm sure the first thing you hear, feel is the the weather and all that but once you get out of the city area and you actually start walking through the jungles and seeing some of these places you've read about and you actually hearing the sounds and feeling the heat and you have the un leveled sands of the uh grounds underneath your feet I'm sure it it really brings that whole um, struggle versus mother nature home to you.
0: Oh, you're you're absolutely right. Um, it's uh when you, you, you hit the nail right on the head because when you, you read this stuff and and you, you don't quite understand it, and people talk about it in a cliche form sometimes. Uh, the, the 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 very interesting thing about Guadalcanal is is that when you take before and after shots, you know, that's usually anybody that travels to locations. They want to get that before and after shot. There's times where when I take, I don't even need to pull the photo out because when I, when I get to the location, I go, Oh, here here it is. Like you, you just see it. It, It's unchanged. And, uh, the, the battlefields are very, is very raw. And the, the heat and humidity is, is unlike anything I've ever experienced. Uh, and, and, uh, And the, the, that combined with all the creepy crawlies Mm -hmm. on the ground, um, you know, we've, uh, you know, I've been down to John Basilone's position, uh, the position that, that he was in, uh, in late October, 1942, the area where he was then awarded the medal of honor. Um, I've, I've spent many times down there and, and it's very, it's right off of the, 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 the slope of bloody Ridge. And, uh, just just the mosquitoes the spiders um the the humidity and the muckiness that, that is just down there and uh if i had a nickel for every time you know you take somebody down there and, and usually the first thing out of their mouth is i don't know i don't know how these guys did this uh because a lot of the times when we did travel you know we we definitely nerded out and a lot of us were in our p41 so we were in boondockers p41s we wanted to the full experience of what these guys go through. And I'll tell you what, HBTs don't breathe that well. <laughs> and uh, when you're wearing Marine dungarees down there and, and we didn't even have equipment on, I mean, we had our backpacks, um, but uh, you know, you're just wet. You're, you're, you know, wet from sweat, wet from, from, from the, 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 shower burst that would, that would hit you. You're, you're walking through the mucky mud um, and you know, you would get back to our hotel and you know you have yourself a nice meal, have a beer, uh, relax a little bit. And these guys didn't have that. And and that was the one thing that we always you know kept in mind when you're doing these trips is you know these men not only were fighting the elements, they were fighting the the Japanese. And um, you know they they didn't have a nice hotel to go to. They were stuck in their hole and uh, having to hold these lines and, and battling all the elements and. Again, no no matter what anybody tells you, and once you experience that at least the environment, you 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 kind of get a sense of it, it was just very very brutal. And uh, if, as a matter of fact, the, the 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 best experience, kind of best slash worst experience that I I had uh, was on this recent trip. We had actually traveled. To Hill 53, the Galloping Horse. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a famous area that was portrayed in the movie uh, The Thin Red Line, and uh, the debate amongst living historians and everybody has always been around the 1998 timeframe. Hey, Saving Private Ryan, Thin Red Line, and you know, I watched Thin Red Line at the time, and obviously, you know, everybody's going, Hey, Saving Private Ryan, this is the better film. It's a Spielberg flick, and Terrence Malick is obviously, you know, has his own artistic way of portraying things. Um, but after watching that movie a few times and then traveling up to the galloping horse, um, the kunai grass, which is the tall grass that you see those guys going through in the movie. And, and, and that, that grass is is razor sharp Mm -hmm. and it, and it creates this vapor lock around you where it's this extra humidity that you're breathing. And, uh, you know we were almost facing the same same things that was the was the underlying subject in that movie was water you know you, you hear everybody talking about you know we need water we need water we need water um we got up to to around the peak of that hill and and we were sitting there we had to actually have a a group meeting to go how much further can we go with our water situation uh because just it was just atrociously hot and, uh, and, and at the time we, we went up there just in kind of cargo pants and t-shirts, you know, knowing that, Hey, we don't want to go <laughs> full, full out on this one. And, uh, I, I, I to this, you know, coming home, I obviously rewatched thin red line and I don't think I can ever watch that movie now without sweating. Yeah. Uh, just to me, I could be in an air conditioned room and I, I think I would start sweating, seeing those guys. And, and, uh, and, and that, and that, that definitely played a factor in a lot of this because, you know, during that battle and, and, and seeing these guys and you, you, you see it the, in in the Pacific, you see it in a lot of Pacific led movies where, I mean, we weren't even in a battle and we, we didn't have to worry about any of that. It was just, we were fighting the environment and just that it just drains you of, of, of all of, of your energy and, and all we had to do was get up to a ridge and really enjoy it and, and take photographs and really remember the men who fought there. We weren't fighting a, a hidden Japanese uh, enemy. I mean, it's, it's, it, it really brings a lot of things into perspective uh, when you travel to places like that, just like you said.
1: Well, and as you said earlier, because those islands are still very underdeveloped, um, the items that the locals... Don't consider to have any value, intrinsic value to them. They're still out there. You know, you sent me a handful of photos, and one of them you can see the clover, clover leaves off the packages from the, the mortars. Um, you know, there's remnants here and there, but because it's so underdeveloped, you could probably look around just about anywhere and find something. Just about anywhere you look. Oh, and it's absolutely and anything that can stand the weather and the heat and humidity for the last 74 70 actually no 76 77 years because we started before D day um and, right. and something that the locals don't think has a currency value to it. it it's probably still there.
0: Oh absolutely you 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 couldn't uh, you can't walk anywhere without seeing a remnant of that battle uh, whether it be as large as a Stuart tank uh, still, still, you know, hanging out in the jungle or, or wrecked planes, um, down to you know bullet casings, um, still live ordnance, um, you know. And 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 to me, that that type of traveling is is very much more rewarding because uh, I'll give you an example. Um, we traveled to what was Dub's Coffin Corner, and during that October action, where, where John Bazelon was awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, they had a, a, an army unit actually come down um, off to to uh, the Seventh Marines left flank to help support that attack, and um, they they had a couple thirty-seven millimeter anti-tank guns, and um, they they uh, once it was done, the battle was over. You know, somebody made the the the, the comments, hey, if you were a coffin maker, you would make a fortune, and and um, so it was dubbed the Battle of Coffin Corner, and 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 that. In, in, even in Guadalcanal, that's considered an off the beaten path type, type of, uh, area. And, uh, by using, uh, some after action reports, uh, satellites, uh, you know, Google Image Earth and some GPS, uh, we were able actually, and it was, it was one of the coolest things, uh, that I had been a part of. We were hitting with metal detectors the pigtails, uh, that is used to hold the barbed wire. And we were finding the pigtails about every, five to seven feet. And then we were actually finding the barbed wire still in the ground. So we were able to actually pull the pigtails up, reset them in the ground and then pull the barbed wire up and hang it on the pigtails. And we were actually reforming the position that the army had in October of 1942, that it, you know, it had really hadn't been touched in 70 plus years. Yeah, and at the, uh... Uh, the, those are kind of those, you know, moments that you have that you're going, wow, because again, you go to, you go to Normandy, you go to some of these places, you go to, you know, point du Hoc It's, you walk there, there's a visitor center, there's a, there's some restroom, there's a, a path, a side, you know, concrete path to walk on. And it's kind of this Disney-fied, uh, uh area of the battlefield. But when you go to Guadalcanal, uh, or, or a lot of these places in the South Pacific, uh, there are still things that are undiscovered. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people really don't know unless you go there and you start, uh, you know, digging around, and uh, you you can be part of some really really neat discoveries and uh, uh, by by doing that.
1: Well, I'm looking at one of the photos you sent me, and it's it's just that. It's, for those listening at home. You're trying to imagine what this pigtail looks like. The very bottom of it. For those of you who've ever had dogs back in the day when it was more acceptable to have a dog on a lead outside for exercise, and you'd screw screw that item into the ground that that ring the bottom of these things had that corkscrew at the end but then it's basically a straight vertical rod it's about what four feet tall three and a half and then, yeah about and then at some point someone heated it up and crawled it around the post and put four rings in it to run to basically built in eyelets so you don't have to worry about you know something breaking off and and once again when it came to the military particularly in 1944 1942 and 39 it's They went by the kiss doctor and keep it simple so instead of having a rod with a bunch of add-ons they just basically heat it up would bend a loop into it so it's got four loops and yeah you would just plant them and twist them right into the ground and i'm sure you could acquire do that with just a um the pigtail and the a rod to use as a, a a turning device and wham that's less tools you need so all you need is a a rod your barbed wire your wire cutters and a stack of these pigtails and you've got yourself a perimeter line set up absolutely and because of the material they've used, that probably is cast iron. I'd assume because if that was uh, steel, it'd rusted it out. But yeah, it looks like it's probably made out of uh, cast iron, and it's still around.
0: Oh uh, yeah, and, and you know some of those have uh, you know made it back to the state. I was going to ask you about uh, you know, that. We've we've uh, taken them and soaked them in uh, uh, citric acid. Uh, a, f- a friend of mine came up with with this idea of the citric acid bath, and and what it does is it's a white rust, uh, rust remover. And uh, we, we soak these for 24 to 48 hours. And you pull them out and, and you know, it's, it almost looks like, you know, they came off of the, off of the factory line or wherever they were manufactured. So uh, definitely, they, you know, the saying is they don't make things like they used to. And, and they made things uh, back in those days. As a matter of fact, I, I brought home an, an, an N-block uh, clip uh, for an M1 Garand. And after I cleaned it up, I had actually put four uh, or eight uh, 30-06 rounds in it, put it in an M1 Grand and, and, and actually fired it, and uh, so it was, you know, really cool to say, hey, I, this is an end block that I found on Guadalcanal that probably some some infantrymen carried from some Army unit, and uh, and, and here it is 70-plus years later, and, you know, I'm at my local gun range, uh, you know, shooting this, this clip, and as nerdy as it sounds, it's just kind of that, that little connection that you can have with, with whatever whatever man was carrying that or using that uh, during the battle uh, for Guadalcanal.
1: Now, one of the photos you sent me, you're standing next to a river, and I guess depending on which map you're using it, at the time, is that the Tenru or, i.e., the Ilu River, or is that just a, a, a river that you just happen to be standing by with the photograph?
0: Um, let me...
1: It's the one with you, and I believe your relative getting a uh, award uh, awarded to him. You're holding a binder book.
0: Oh, yes, uh, so that is actually uh, that's the Alligator Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm holding a photo of Al Schmid, which what we predict estimate where Al Schmid's position was uh, on Alligator Creek. Uh, this was you know also made famous uh, uh, recently by HBOs the Pacific. They show this at the at the end of episode one, um, which I will commend. The uh, the HBO producers because um, the first time that I stepped foot on Alligator Creek, it was like I was walking onto the to the set of the TV series. Uh, they got that down to a T, um, and uh, this was uh, actually kind of transitions into how I got in touch with you earlier because this was the site where uh, Sir Jacob Vusa, the famous Solomon Islander, mm-hmm. uh, had actually made it back to these Marine lines and, and the, and the, the Marines, uh, were set up along this, uh, this river here. And, uh, Colonel, uh, Echiki and his forces were, were coming to recapture the airfield. And, uh, they ran into a, a heavily armed, uh, Marine force full of, uh, heavy 1917 water-cooled machine guns and 37 millimeter anti-tank guns. And, uh, it did not end well for them. Uh, but, uh, this, uh, you know, Al Schmid, uh, who was, uh, he was blinded during this attack, and uh, you know, just was gone on to, um, you know, just Marine Corps lore. It was it was it was it was a uh, complete uh, hero, um, you know, during this battle. And uh, as a matter of fact, I believe after the war and around 1945-1946, they did a movie on him uh, called *Pride of the Marines*, and uh, which I highly recommend uh, to the listeners to watch. It's an older movie, but uh, it it really Takes the context of, of not only the battle for Guadalcanal, but but the psychological aspect that these men dealt with uh, coming home from the war oh, and, yes. and trying to assimilate back into culture. So they were trying to address this back in those days, which really wasn't as commonplace as it is, as it is today. Um, so so for it was pretty groundbreaking at the time um, to, to focus on that.
1: Well, and they covered it briefly, you know. A scene or two in the Pacific where, you know, you hear EB struggling in his bed and his dad kind of shakes his head as he walks away or more in depth is when, uh, Leckie's looking out the window down to his neighbor's house and she, he sees her going away on another date and he turns around and he jumps and his mom's standing behind him. He's like, wow, you sneak up like a Jap. Are you a Jap? You know, it, just the, the constant <laughs> being on guard from living in those conditions, um, is definitely, you know, heart wrenching. But speaking of heart, I'm looking at these photos again, and it heartwarming. On the other hand, to see that they did in fact erect a monument to Mr. Vouza, as he's so gallantly standing at the top in his indigenous um, garb, carrying what's probably a blade or a knife. But it's very cool that oh, you know. I know he went a off. a rock star to, there. As I was gonna say, I he know he went off to have star. a political career, but it's it's super. It's just it's so nice to see that. uh, they did, in fact, raise a monument to him. Um, where is that monument located?
0: Uh, the, the monument's located in Haniara. So if uh, you, know, you, you, you go to Guadalcanal, Haniara is the capital, um, and it's 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 roughly probably about twenty or thirty minutes or so from from the airport. And um, in, in the it's 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 definitely a unique place because Haniara is this dense population of, of people, and then one side of the road to the capital, and the other side of the road starts the jungle and and into these coral ridges. So uh, you know, it's it, the, the capital itself is really not that that large, uh, you know, in, in kind of an American you know large city uh, you know context, but uh, but it, it's located right on the main drag. Uh, there, the one kind of main road that goes through Haniara, and uh, there's his uh, his um, his statue uh, that's uh, that's there. And actually, across the street uh, is a few memorials to the to the Canberra uh, and some of the ships that were lost during the Battle of Savo Island. Uh, so right in there, they kind of put those those monuments around some of the some of the government buildings there. Yeah.
1: Now the airport you flew into does that reside in what once was Henderson Field, or is that a completely different location?
0: That actually, so so right now when you go there, it, they still refer to it as, as Henderson Airport. Uh, nice. And, uh, so that is one of the the cool things that you know I tell guys when they go there. You know, I when soon as we touched down, I looked over at a friend of mine and I said, "You just landed on the most famous airstrip uh, of, of World War II, and uh, you know, you can the one of the older control towers, one of the original control towers from World War II is still there. It's still erect. Don't recommend you climbing no, up to the a, top, um, I'm but, looking at a but it's road. still there. And you can tell uh, us You can still see the outline of of what was the old uh, airstrip." Um, there was a lot of people don't realize that there was Henderson Field, which was the main field, and then they also had a few fighter strips uh, to, to, to um, be, uh, allow themselves to control a, a lot of the air traffic because, and then they had some bomber strips and they really expanded the, the air operations uh, as the battle raged on because. Uh, Again, a lot of people don't realize is that the the Battle for Guadalcanal was the longest sustained campaign America was in during World War II. Uh, It lasted from August of 1942 and ran all the way to February of 1943 until we declared the island uh, uh, safe and in our control.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, uh, looking at the photo of the air tower, you can tell this isn't an American uh, photo, and you can tell that... uh... Their government's not ran by lawyers or insurance companies because there's not even so much of a warning rope preventing you from going up to the stairs. Mm-hmm. What would be your death because the what's remaining of the wooden floor is probably as about as strong as some uh, balsa wood, and it's just it's just there. They're gonna assume you're not gonna be dumb enough to climb up there. There's no chains. There's no no uh, fence yeah. <laughs> around it. It's just
0: sitting there. <laughs> the uh, the safety uh, you know you I, I I've been hearing rumors of of uh, you know that they, they want to. The lawyers would be. They want to put a kind of a tram car that goes through the Pointe to Hoc area in Normandy, and uh, you know, they rope things off, obviously. But when you when you go to the Pacific, it's kind of uh, uh you know the 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 survival of the fittest, and they assume that you're not going to be dumb enough and and uh, to, to do these things, and uh, well, you know, I, so, you, so you definitely come across some things that are like. I mean, again, you you come across live ordinance all the time, and you know they're just saying, hey, just don't be an idiot. And, don't pick it up.
1: Well, unironically, they're not dealing with first world problems. I mean, they're literally an underdeveloped nation. They're more worried about uh, employment, health care, and uh, feeding their population. So, uh, yeah, they're definitely right, yeah, they're definitely not worried about those things. <laughs> exactly. Now, what is the primary language down there? What is the first language down there? Is, is everybody so, speaking English? Uh, the,
0: the language is they, they, it's pigeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a kind of a hybrid of. This English-Spanish uh, kind of dialect uh, that that was developed, but most of the people there, because the Solomon Islands right up to World War II was was run and governed by by the British, and the the capital actually at that time was Tulagi, and uh, so so they had decades of, 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 being under British rule. And so obviously English is, is the very, you know, it, it's, to, to be honest, there's probably more people that speak English in the Solomon Islands than I've ever encountered in Belgium, sure. uh, which is, which, which is odd. Um, so, so and, and they know enough where, you know, if you're talking to somebody, you know, they, we, they, they get the point and uh, the, the, a lot of the people within their, their tourism industry obviously speak speak English very well.
1: And for those new listeners who want to get a better example of Pigeon English, um, because of his journalistic background and his college degree, Robert Leckie does um, some fantastic, um, I don't want to say translation, but he actually writes it out letter for letter, word to word, in both his Helmet for My Pillow and, as previously mentioned, Strong Men Are in America First to Japan. When he talks about VUSA and the other, um, you know, indigenous people, and he's quoting them. He does it in Pidgin English, and so you can actually read it and, and fumble through it. And if you heard the episode where I was talking about VUSA and I said, me, Vooza, me, that wasn't me, you know, tripping over my monologue I wrote. That actually came from an excerpt of um, Robert Lecky's book, and that's how it was written. You know, I do a very poor impression of that, but when I was reading that and doing that recording, that wasn't me um stumbling over the writing of that monologue that was how it was written in the book and that was my poor attempt of trying to recreate that language and that uh voice that he used when they found him um so wounded from the japanese and the horrible things they did to him look at these photos and you're talking about it earlier with the um the underdevelopment, which is a good thing as far as the history side i don't know if it's a good thing if you live down there but um but you're talking about you know you can see tanks and I see there's some anti-aircraft fortifications that are still remnant. But being the Americans we are and what we consider paradise and our idea of dream vacations, I'm sure walking around Europe and seeing some of what remains of the damage, it's, it affects your heart and your, your mind and you can visualize it. But is there something about being in such a beautiful landscape, such as Guadalcanal, where you're looking at this crystal blue water You're looking at these beautiful birds, this beautiful vegetation, and then you turn around and you see the stark rusted out hunk of iron from 76 years ago that's still sitting there. And since you've been to both locations, do you find that it's more impactful because of the type of environment and the beauty that comes from that tropical um, uh, geography that makes it more impactful to see and to uh, think about the damage caused from the war?
0: Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'll I'll never take away, uh, you know, I mean, each site, uh, you know, means something to, to everyone. I mean, I've, sure. you know, I have a lot of connections with, with some veterans that, you know, when I would go to, um, you know, Normandy and, and know these stories and, um, you know, it, and, you know, one of the stories that everybody knows, that, that all my friends know that I'm very, very interested in is the story of Lieutenant uh, Turner Turnbull on D-Day in Normandy and, and going to his grave site, and and uh, you know I I always break down in tears. Uh well, and, I, and just knowing the sacrifice that he gave.
1: Well, I'm not trying to take it any away done. from it. I guess my point. No, being no, is, no.
0: I'm not. Uh, but is the European you know, landscape we
1: you, we see similar right, landscape it, it, here in America it, and I in Canada, but very few of us. Yeah. Unless you live in the Bahamas or Florida Keys, do you are you used to seeing that sort of landscape, and so. When you're over in Europe, yes, we're from you know we're kind of more familiar with farm landscapes and beautiful mountains and all that. Right. But okay. Yeah. We come from society where we save up two, three, four years worth of tax returns and bonuses so we can go to Fiji and the Bahamas and places where we consider a true paradise. And because of the um, complete difference from what we're used to seeing every day versus that, to once again you know, yes, the architecture is a little different, but when it comes to the farmland and the mountains like that. You know, we can kind of see similar things here, but down there, I mean, there's very few places on Earth that look like that.
0: It is. It's it's, it's such a unique place. You know, I've I've been fortunate to you know to to be at certain places. You know, I've been to Hawaii and um, you know different. You know, Florida, obviously, you go to these tropical locations, and after a while, they all you know it's they the beach. It's a beautiful sunset and sand and everything. But but like you said, when you go there and you see this. You know, it, it it takes on a different meaning because you can only imagine with with, with an 18 year old or or even, uh, for instance, uh, one of the youngest Marines, uh, Paul Heller, uh, who was was killed uh, on the battle uh, during the Battle of Guadalcanal. He was 15 years old when he was was killed there, and you can only imagine, you know, some farm boy from Iowa or, you know, a coal miner from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, showing up to, to and seeing this tropical paradise, and then turning into what the Japanese of the island of death. Um, it, it's it is it, it's just. I, I've been to other islands. I've I've been to Iwo Jima. I've been to Saipan and Guam and Tinian and Peleliu And there's to me there's nothing that quite looks like Guadalcanal and has the feeling of that island and and uh, and. You know, you go there and it's just—it's very—you're—you're you're in another world—is—is is, is really the, the one way that I can describe it. It's uh, and and to stand at some of these locations is and see kind of this beauty, but then you have to bring yourself back in and go, oh my God, this is such a beautiful spot, and then you look down and you go, well, I'm also standing in a, a mortar position that you know some some 18 year old marine or, or army infantryman was using to, to 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 defend his life and his buddies and and firing a mortar and radio and and it just kind of brings you back into this like how could you how could you have a war in such a you know beautiful place and uh it, it is it's um i i tell everybody you know that that You need to experience this, and and, uh, it it should be on everybody's bucket list that is a student of of World War II or the Pacific, and just to experience it uh, in some form of capacity, going there, whether it be for
1: a few days or
0: a few weeks.
1: And, you know, as you said, this is a beautiful environment to have a war in, but one of the stark contrasts when it comes to how we operated down there, because one, you know, Amphibious landings, this was new, and they were tested and tried and true, and they were birthed in the Pacific, and one of the standard operating procedures, especially due to the um, concrete bunkers and the fortifications that the Japanese had put in place, yeah, it was common practice to do bombing runs and to shell before landing, but down there they shelled for days, weeks, (laughs) weeks, and weeks, Prior to the landing. And so, not only were we going down there dropping some bombs, but we were literally decimating this landscape for days on end, trying to break these bunkers, to clear a landing, to do as much damage as possible to preserve human life before we even stepped foot on the beaches. And so, yeah, not only were we down there with flamethrowers and rifles, mortars, and howitzers, but we bombed the living holy hell out of these beaches before we even loaded up one landing craft.
0: Well, that, that's definitely the case for, for, for a lot of the islands, but for, for Guadalcanal, there was really no, was really no infrastructure that the Japanese yeah. were, were initially putting that in. They had, they had a few, but it's not to the, to the point of state Iwo Jima. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when we get Iwo Jima and Okinawa, I mean, we're, we're hitting those islands with the righteous hammer of God. I, I mean, you're talking about operations that are that are larger than overlord Mm -hmm. the 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 thing with guadalcanal is is this is our first amphibious landing since 1898 and and uh everything is in question Uh, that that and 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 from start to finish i mean you you i mean this is one of the only if if not the only battle where roosevelt Congress, the War Department—they are drafting up plans. Going, what if we lose the first Marine division? What if we lose our Navy? Uh, I mean, it was so so bad that the, the one of the one of the famous stories that that, that just well, not really famous. It's, I don't know if anybody really knows about it because I, I was just at the Reading Air Show and I told one of the pilots of the PBY Catalina. I said, have you ever heard of Major Jack Cram, and he said, well, no, and 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 I always. This is a story that I, I always use to say how dire it was on Guadalcanal. And the, the torpedo bombers were, were in, on, on October 14th, 1942, the Japanese sent two battleships uh, through uh, Iron Bottom Sound. And for two hours, they go unopposed and fire over 1,014 shells at Henderson's Field and the surrounding areas. And any Marine that lived through that or any you know, mechanic, uh, naval, you know, uh, construction person, anything—they they always called it the bombardment. Um, and uh, so Major Jack Cram was, was was a personal pilot to to, to General Geiger, and, and, and he was at a Spirit de Santo, and he would he would fly this PBY Catalina there, and then he would load up anything he could—ammunition, medicine, uh, uh, letters—and on one of these trips, he said, "Hey, we need torpedoes. Throw them up on the wings of my PBY." And so they strap these, these torpedoes to a PBY and they fly it back to, 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 Guadalcanal. Well, he lands after this bombardment has happened and he said, Hey guys, I brought these torpedoes back for you. And they said, Well, that's fine and dandy, but we have no planes to, to drop them. And, uh, so, so, so Cram's standing there going, Okay. Well, so, so one of the mechanics goes, Well, I think I can rig up this PBY with a mechanical release to, for this PBY to drop the torpedoes. And so Cram goes, eh, okay, well, you know, well, let's get one of the pilots. And they said, well, yeah, we don't really have any because we gave them all rifles and they're on the front lines with the 7th Marines right now. So we were putting pilots on the front lines. And uh, so they said, you've got to fly it. And, and so he goes, well, I've never done a torpedo bombing run in my life. And the one guy goes, well, my brother is one. I'll tell you all, he's told me, get in the Jeep while we drive to the airfield. <laughs> So this guy got a 10-minute crash course in the Jeep going to the airfield, and uh, they get there, and, and, and he takes the, you know, off with the PBY, and you know, the operational speed of the PBY Catalina was about 160 miles an hour. He got this thing going at 270. He's got Japanese fighters attacking him, and he's able to drop one of these torpedoes and, and strike a Japanese transport and, and, and sink it. And, uh, and he lands with over 100-plus holes in the plane and, wow. you know, is awarded the, the Navy Cross uh, for his actions. But, uh, you know, that's kind of how Guadalcanal, I always say, that kind of sums it up. Where We were putting our our pilots on the front line with rifles, and we were <laughs> using PBYs uh, as, as, as bombers uh, and said it, it was just, Everything was in the question. It was. It was. Every man had a job to do, and 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 then some. And uh, and 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 for for a while, no reinforcements. Uh, you know, the, the Navy had had it kind of left uh, due to the circumstances after the Battle of Savo Island, and George and. and um, being some. You know, these Marines had to. You know, the, as they dubbed it, Operation Shoestring, because they felt that they were on the end of the shoestring, and I mean, this this battle could have teetered. You know, one way or the other, and and the Japanese night after night were reinforcing themselves, and uh, and and these Marines just had to dig in and 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 uh, and hold and that airfield and, and hope and pray and, and and fight like Marines do.
1: And not only and, were uh, ten- not only were these pilots out there using rifles, but at the time prior to the army coming as reinforcements, these guys were using 1903 bolt action Springfield. The M1 hadn't even set foot on any island, and even after the army came, the Marines weren't issued them until they went back to Australia. And so, I mean, absolutely, they these were, guys they was... were
0: using World War One equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them were, were using World War One web gear and uh, 1903 rifles, and yeah, they, they didn't have grands and um, you know the the one thing that they did have and they knew how to use, was, was heavy and light machine guns and, and anti-tank guns with uh, canister shot. And that was something that the Japanese uh, had never uh, really encountered, is that massing of firepower. And, uh, you know, these these uh, these men of the 1st Marine Division, uh, a lot of them never been in combat, and, and, and what some of them were able to do was, was miraculous. And it's just, and, and I'm not taking away from you know, any of the other campaigns, oh, but not. I mean, there's, you know, and a lot of people say that there was never any doubt that we were going to take Iwo Jima. There was never any doubt that we were going to take Okinawa. It was just going to be, what was the cost. Mm-hmm. And I think Guadalcanal being that first stepping stone uh, where a lot of things were in question and what these Marines were asked to do in that type of environment uh, is, uh, you know, again, you go there, And you, and you walk these, these jungles and just get it to go. I'm, you know, thank, thank God that I, I don't have to experience what these men went through, but, but being able to experience just an ounce of the environment and, and what they may have felt like, uh, it just, it just opens up this, this whole new appreciation of for actually what these men, uh, had gone through.
1: Brian, I want to thank you for your time and uh, thank you for sharing your story about your uh, multiple trips to Guadalcanal. Is there any living history groups you want to plug or any information you want to get out there to anybody who's listening who uh, may be in the uh, Pennsylvania area or up in the Midwest or um, anybody who's concerned planning a vacation or a trip such as the one you have undertaken a few times now?
0: Yeah, um, you know, my the, the units that I belong to is G Company, 507th, that's our, our main unit. We represent the 82nd Airborne, but uh, over the recent years, you know, we've also had little side impressions of, uh, we also do the 1st Marine Division as well as, uh, I, I have one of uh, the only uh, 4.2 chemical mortars uh, in the United States, um, and so we also represent the 87th Chemical Mortar Battalion. Uh, we're going to be, uh, typically we, we go to D-Day Ohio, uh, and we do a live fire mortar demonstration there at D-Day Ohio. And, uh, so, so we have a lot of different impressions and, uh, and then also too, um, you know, if, if anybody's, you know, interested in going to Guadalcanal, I, I highly recommend, uh, Valor Tours out of California. Uh, they are probably, uh, there, there. I mean, there are also a, a few, you know, National World War II Museum, uh, Stephen Ambrose Tours, things like that. But in my opinion, Valor Tours uh, gives you the biggest bang for your buck uh, because some of, some of these tours will cost you uh, $10,000, dollars 20000 uh, sometimes to do in the South Pacific. Uh, but Valor Tours knows that, hey, that traveling to these places aren't for the ultra-rich, and uh, so so they are... You know, it's more of an economy, uh, uh, scale of a package. And i tell you what, just you know, real quick, I, you know, I've been, to, I, I was on the recent, uh, uh, Saipan, uh, Iwo Jima and, uh, trip and, and all of these tour companies use the same subcontractors once you get on the island. So you're, you're doing things and you're standing next to people that are from higher end tour packages and we're doing the same thing. We're seeing the same things. Uh, the only difference is, is I paid a quarter of what they paid for. And, uh, you know, instead of staying at a high-end Wyndham or Marriott, you may be staying in a, you know, a two- or three-star hotel. But anybody that has traveled to the Pacific, when you, you're you there to uh, – they're long and hard days. And when you get back, as long as you have a clean bed and a shower and, a, and an air conditioner, all that's, that uh, that's all that matters. So I, I'll – i 'd rather save uh you know ten thousand fifteen thousand dollars and stay at the, uh at, at a at a more economy style hotel than than uh, you know be in a lush uh you know higher end scale hotel so uh that's uh i, I always recommend them they they do a great job their their historians they're, are phenomenal and uh and then also too you know contact me and uh you know i'm always looking for for another excuse to uh to go to the south pacific as much as my uh Wife may uh, may roll her eyes. <laughs> that, well, maybe one day I'll
1: uh, uh, I'll catch that flight with you. Real quick, have you pondered or played with the idea of coming down to uh, Fort Morgan, Alabama, for the 75th anniversary of the Pelahoo?
0: Yeah, um, you know I I, I I talked to to Galen actually. Uh, Galen actually uh, came up to um, our uh, uh, to do uh, Fort Town Gap, the last Fort Town Gap that they mm-hmm. had a few years ago. Um, so. Um, you know obviously, that it's, it's a long distance uh, sure. uh, to to come down there, but uh, you know there's there's a lot going on, so I'm hoping to uh, you know uh, get down there for for one of those events. I, i've I've heard they're fantastic. And then also too, for for anybody that's interested in doing the uh, 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 the Pacific end of things next year in May um, at the Newville site in Pennsylvania, which is the World War One, the famous World War One reenactment site. Uh, they are having a Okinawa uh, uh, reenactment, which is, is planning on. They, they, they want it to be the biggest on the East Coast. Uh, this will be the first time, um, but, uh, you know, for, for anybody out there, and especially if anybody does Japanese reenacting, uh, they're rolling out the red carpet for any Japanese forces, free registration, free ammo. Uh, Joe Lombardo is the, uh, is the event organizer for that, and uh, they are, uh, there's, a, there's a Facebook page. Uh, for that, I believe it's Okinawa 2020, uh, uh, something of that. If you search it, it will, it will come up on Facebook. But uh, that's uh, looking to be a, a great Pacific uh, themed event uh, for next year.
1: Brian Domet, say your last name one more time. I'll edit this out.
0: Dimitrovich.
1: Dimitrovich. Brian Dimitrovich. thank you so much for your time. It's been an extreme pleasure. And uh, more than that, thank you for reaching out to me with your, um, your experiences. And uh, this is the stuff we're looking for. So uh, thank you so much for your time and your passion and all the um, information you provided to us today. And my friend, I hope to uh, talk to you again soon. And that is going to wrap it up for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. My name is Don Abernathy. Apparently, I don't promote myself enough because I've had one or two people reach out to me and have a conversation with me and then ask me my name because apparently I don't say it enough on the show so I'm your host Don Abernathy thank you for joining us for the last year and six months now wow 2019 is halfway over I just turned 41 the show's getting older people are in the background but that's all right the show's over with anyhow real quick sticker giveaway fresh in the mail today the new what's the scuttlebutt podcast lucky strike logo kinda they're a little different keep me from getting sued But if you like the classic vintage Lucky Strikes white cigarette pack, you'll like these stickers. And we also have t-shirts available. I'm not giving the t-shirts away yet. But if you want a sticker, just like always, email us, info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. That's WTSPWWII.com. Send me your name, your address, and that's it. Limited quantity while supplies last. Say, hey, Don, send me a sticker. Give me your name, your address. I will throw a sticker in the mail. You can display it proudly and hopefully send me a photo so we can share it with our community on Facebook and Instagram. Go to wtspworldwar 2com Please help us by uh, supporting us on Patreon or do the Amazon link thing. Buy a shirt, but get your free sticker. Info at wtspworldwar 2com Name, address, that's it. I will send you a sticker in the mail. Thank you so much. And, uh, oh, tune in for the next episode. Let you a little preview. How many of you knew that during the war, the Army decided they need to make a battalion made up strictly of John Deere employees? I didn't either. They were called the John Deere Battalion. We have an archivist coming from the John Deere Company on next week's not next week's episode because of the holidays coming up, but the next episode coming up, we will have the John Deere Archivist talking about the John Deere Battalion on the next episode. Thank you so much. Enjoy your holiday. We'll see you again.